The words that I'm about to read are from a Newsweek article titled, Respectfully Disagreeing Doesn't Work When It Comes to, quote, Human Rights. The author notes in the opinion piece, LGBTQ members are caught in the crossfire between religion and politics. Between religion and politics. In the, in the author's piece, the idea that there is zero relig religion in some people's politics is false. All politicians, and even this author, has a faith in something and congregates around certain ideas and morals. Because religion is a unified system of belief and practices relative to sacred things, to that community. That is to say, things set apart and forbidden, beliefs and practices which unite into one single moral community. That's the historic definition. But he says that their members are caught in the crossfire between religion and politics. Now, the author, like many in the media today, assumes that there are no religious and faith underpinnings to say, um, to say the things that, for example, crit critical queer theories teach. But there are very doctrinal and theological statements in those theories. It comes from a belief that the world appeared in its order and the cosmos too by a random big bang and that we're all just fundamentally animals and the highest virtue is for us to live by is our deepest desires. What desires we have is what we really are. Those are all doctrinal underpinnings. From schools introducing now the author goes on to say more. He says, from schools introducing anti-LGBTQ policies because they are, quote, woke and will brainwash our children to the blatant attack on transgenders' access to health care, there is not one aspect of queer community that's not demonized by calling us, quote, groomers and targeted with acts of violence. But again, the author ignores the articles and books whose goal it is to teach the youth their religious message. And the author assumes that what he deems health care, billions consider, billions on this planet consider malpractice and have for centuries. And the author assumes that putting on drag shows where grown men put themselves in debased costumes dressed as seducing women for children does not give off a grooming vibe. He goes on to say, what we continue to see is a fight against progress for humanity not an opposition of views. Gen Z has especially abandoned the idea of respectfully disagreeing, as our generation is sick and tired of the lack of accountability. The fact that there is an entire political party that thrives on the notion that they reject any differences whatsoever should bother every American, but it doesn't. We then ask ourselves, what will? I fear the only monumental change will come from resistance End quote. Published this week. Well, what seems to be the, the wisest thing? Should we be accommodating people, accommodating as people say that we, you know, that what they have in their desire is their whole identity despite its contrary message to the Bible? Should we just accommodate that in our beliefs? Should we put our heads in the sand and not engage people about our beliefs at all? 
Obeying God in this world, you know, does that mean feeling no opposition? Where do you feel the world's displeasure because of your faith in God and in Christ Jesus? Hebrews 11, as you heard today, tells us that of those who experience mocking for their faith and obedience. Today, we're going to look at one of those examples when those who sided with God were mocked. And those who looked at them for their stance with God looked at them with great displeasure. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. We're in the Old Testament. Nehemiah chapter 2. Ezra and Nehemiah are, go together as really one book together. Covering the waves of bat returnees from Babylonian exile. Jewish people have come back to Jerusalem out of exile, but the city is not holy to the Lord. The Davidic ruler, the Messiah, is not in place. The people's hearts have not wholly been changed, and evildoers have not yet been eradicated. That was the expectation. That's what the prophets proclaimed. The permanent solutions to Israel's problems await completion. And as students of the Bible, we know that scriptures indicate that more will be done by the creator and covenant-keeping God who governs human events. And so the focus of Ezra and Nehemiah on the city of Jerusalem highlights this place where God displayed his grace, dwelling with his people and making a way through the temple sacrifices for them to worship and live as his people. All of his grace and favor prepared the way for God's greatest gift, his son, from whose fullness we have all received grace upon grace, John said in John chapter 1. And to whom we respond by rising up and serving. So far, Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the Persian king, has been brokenhearted about Jerusalem's condition. He has prayed fervently. And, he, and God has made him ready now, as we looked at last week, to ask the king for permission to go and rebuild the city walls. And the request was approved. So now we're in chapter 2, verses 9 through 20. Let's pick up and see what happens Next, So everything looks like it's heading in a good direction. The open doors, right? Go get the timber. Get, here's the letters of recommendation. All of that for you to go and do this task. Let's read now chapter 2, verse 9. I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent officers of the infantry and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. After I arrived in Jerusalem and had been there three days, I got up at night and I took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. I went out at night through the valley gate towards the serpent's well and, dung, and the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but farther down it became too narrow for my animal to go through. So I went up at night by the way of the valley and inspected the wall. Then heading back, I entered through the valley gate and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. For I had not yet told the Jews, priests, nobles, officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work. So I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies 
in ruins, and its gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall so that we will no longer be a disgrace. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. They said, let's start rebuilding. And their hands were strengthened to do this good work. When Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about this, they mocked and despised us and said, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? I gave them this reply. The God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. We, his servants, will start building. But you have no share, right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. This is God's word. This passage is framed on both sides by mocking and displeasure and opposition to Nehemiah, who was merely seeking to see Jerusalem exclusively worshiping God alone. That's it. I mean, so let me ask some questions here. Do you desire comfort over obedience? That's one of those questions where you're like, give me the day. Are you upset about the culture today more than you are about your own walk with God and about the edification of his church? Are you prone to lash out late and, and go into action rather than seek God in prayer live wi- and live wisely as a witness of Jesus Christ? Do you have a faith that inspires no one? To these questions, I believe this passage can help us. Here's the central point. It's there for you in your bulletin. The world rejects the supremacy of God. The world rejects the supremacy of God. Therefore, be resolved to walk wisely in obedience to the Lord. Be resolved to walk wisely in obedience to the Lord. Number one, point number one, three points, how we can do this from this passage. Number one, see the natural hostility toward God. See the natural hostility toward God. Verses 9 and 10, we're going to focus. And let me front load by saying the obvious. The world is opposed to God's people. And they do not respond favorably to those who seek God's will for God's people. And the Bible refers to the world as creation, but it also refers to it as the current age and system of man against God. The age, this age, this world is evil and opposed to God. It has a hostile character to the truthfulness and the majesty of God. And today, if you are not a Christian, if you have never repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, if you've never had a changed relationship to sin where you say, you know what, I'm in rebellion against God. I know the judgment is due me, but I know I need Christ. I want to turn from that by his grace and follow him. If you've not had that changed experience with sin and you're not a Christian, I want to tell you from the scriptures, not Pastor Garrett, that you're not part of God's people, but you're part of the world that avoids and hates God for his holiness, for his sovereignty, for his knowledge of you in all ways, and for his power. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. 
All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat, Paul says, is an open grave in Romans 3. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness, wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. That is the natural man. And he goes on in Romans 3 to say, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So outside of the grace of the Holy Spirit, you will never choose God over your sin. Outside of his wooing power, you will treasure yourself and your sin first. We have all sinned. We've all been born under wrath, headed for death, and without hope unless God intervenes. And this is what motivated Nehemiah. He knew the Lord personally. He longed for God to save, to send the Messiah, to restore the world. And the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his only eternally begotten son, Jesus, as our Savior from sin and from wrath against sin. So if you believe, trust in Christ alone for your salvation, not your own righteousness, but his you can be saved because he lived the perfect life without sin, died in the place of sinners, was raised on the third day, just like God said he would. And if you want to get out of the world and into the fellowship of the forgiven, cleansed of your sins, have eternal life, you have to repent of your sins. You have to take God's side against your sin and trust in Jesus alone. If you're under conviction this morning as I'm preaching to you that you need Christ don't delay. Trust in him. Put your trust in him and know his forgiveness. He welcomes any sinner who would turn and trust in him. You will no longer know God's opposition, but acceptance through his son. But if you are a Christian and if you have put your trust in Jesus, you will know the other opposition. That's the opposition of the world. The scene is straightforward with the primary actors here in the text. Nehemiah goes. He presents his credentials. Look at the text. But, but the, but the uh, governors all around are not necessarily thrilled about his new post because he was pursuing the prosperity of the Israelites in Jerusalem, namely spiritual prosperity. And in verse 9, we see Nehemiah, a man who was given authority, given a royal commission, authenticated by royal letters, infantry and cavalry enter the scene. And, and in verse 10, he, we see the surrounding nations represented by Sanballat, Tobiah, are greatly dis displeased, perturbed, irritated about the fact that someone had come to pursue the spiritual good of Israel. And that means a focus on the worship of God alone. The idol's got to go, and the worship of God alone will take place there. These two men here represent ancient enemies of God's people, namely Samaria and the Ammonites. And the contrast here between good and evil pervades the chapter in a way that's not immediately evident from the English translations. The Legacy Standard Bible renders it very literally here. It was a very great evil to them, it says. And what you have here is two kingdoms in conflict. God's kingdom versus man. One is the true kingdom and the other is a false one fueled by idolatry, which are nothing more than what uh, Francis Schaeffer called amplified humanity. So the name Sanballat is a Babylonian name, meaning the moon god. His name was Sin. Sin, the moon god, has given life. And the contrast is, is even more point, pointed out in verse 10 where it's, it displeased them. It was evil to them. And the welfare of the Israelites is simply is, uh, that welfare is their, that is, their, is their good. They're good with God. So everything that serves the interests of the returned exiles 
The king's decision, the rebuilding of the walls, is good. And all that tends towards or is the product of the, their loss, the broken walls, Nehemiah's grief, the aspirations of Sanballat in them, is evil in the text. Isaiah 5 said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. These men are like the world who suppress the truth and unrighteousness in order to avoid the rule of God over them and the blessing that could flow out from these people as they're worshiping God. They want to avoid that, suppress that, assert themselves as chief, as front and center, as, as if all faiths are equal and they are not. And so by hating the people coming back to reestablish themselves unto God in obedience to the law, they are opposing God. It's not Nehemiah they're opposing. They're opposing the Lord. That's what sin is. When we sin, it's first and fundamentally against God. They are to live, these people though were sit there to live holy and wait for the arrival of Messiah, to proclaim his word in anticipation of his promises, but there are those who hate that. And there are people who hate, um, hate witnesses in their own community today. They hate, the, the, they, they would love to see more churches torn down. They would love to see another gospel witness snuffed out. Uh, they want to see that happen uh, as you can hear from the article I just read to you, uh, they want to take. They want to see those uh, uh, destroyed who seek to strengthen their faith and obedience to Jesus Christ. But here's the question, Laplata: Can people tell that we are about the kingdom of God, or do we signal that we are more about this world with some Christian morals sprinkled in for a more comfortable community and more culture? Comfort, uh, comfortability. I mean, can people engage us and tell that we are about Jesus in our private and public dealings in our evangelism? Can they tell? The clear implication of verse 10, look back at the text, is that the opposition to Judah from these leaders is not merely unfortunate. There's a spiritual aspect of good and evil at play. They are opposed to God's people. They do not respond favorably, favorably to those who seek God's will. For God's people. But Nehemiah, I wonder if he was singing a mighty fortress. I don't think it, it wasn't written back then. It's just a joke. But he was not trembling for them, was he? He reminds us that we should not fear the fear of man, but we should fear the Lord. The work of God is finally uh, dependent upon God. And so if you're trying to serve God faithfully, you should also know you're engaged in spiritual warfare. Everything that tends to your victory in obedience is good. Everything that tends to your defeat in, in disobedience is evil. So if you can see that, it will make a great difference in how you fight the battle. But there, there are battles raging all around us. There are bu bureaucrats who see any version of Christianity that challenges the status quo as subversive, as unnecessary, as unwise, hateful, and destructive, rather than constructive, and there are so-called Christian leaders out there today who, just like the world, are very convinced of their worldly wisdom and how they skip over the Bible, they cherry-pick it, uh, downplay the Bible, undermine it, like Andy Stanley has recently again, 
and even outright teach people to reject the plain teachings of God's word. They become a sand ballot to the people of God who are seeking to march in faithfulness. The enemies here are not happy because with the rebuilding of the walls comes the potential for exclusive, exclusive worship of God alone and God's worship and exaltation is threatening to those who want to worship themselves. It convicts them of their sin and people don't want that. Men love darkness rather than the light. Their worship of money, pleasure, their idolatry, it impacts them and it could be, it could be a hindrance as it was to these uh, ones in opposition to Nehemiah. It offends people. It offends people when we stand on the exclusive claims of his word. It offends people when we stand on the exclusive claims of Christ. The one who has the son has life, eternal life. The one who does not have the son of God does not have eternal life. 1 John 5 verse 12. It offends people when I fence the Lord's table on communion Sunday. Friends, the holiness of God says to every sinner, if you remain in the world against Christ and in unbelief, you shall not pass. So Nehemiah is our model here, a, revelant, a, 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 a model for us here of our, for our time because he sees, we see the hostility here. We expect it. We expect it. We expect it toward Jesus Christ. Friends, what I want to compel you to do today is pick a side. Choose a side. At some point, you're going to have to choose sides. The world rejects the supremacy of God. Be resolved to walk wisely in obedience to the Lord. Point one, see the, the, natural, reje uh, the, the natural rejection towards God, the natural world towards the Lord. Number two, see the carefulness that is required. See the carefulness that is required. And we're going to look at verses 11 through 16 now. You look at that section. Recently, there was quite a stir over Deion Sanders, a.k.a. Coach Prime, one of the greatest athletes in American history, only guy who ever played in an uh, NFL game and the World Series the same week, okay? Not many have ever done that. I think he's the only one, by the way. Um, there was a stir over Sanders, Coach Prime, they call him, in his opening speech to the current University of Colorado uh, football team where Prime had just got hired. And I got a, I, I, like many of you, if you saw it, you probably got a kick out of it. He made it very public. I know there was things that happened behind the scenes, but it was very public, uh, as he always has been his, his whole career, um, with one refrain, I'm coming. I'm coming, is what he said, kept saying. I'm coming not just to show up, but to show out. I'm coming to kill it, not just to kick it. I'm coming to restore, replace, and re-energize, the coach said. Well, very public. I mean, that's just Coach Prime's whole life has been that way. And you would think that with the momentum and the papers and the cavalry that, that Nehemiah had, maybe he would have come in with great open boldness and publicity, but that's not what he does here. He, the new governor of Jerusalem goes in very carefully. Do you notice that? And inconspicuously in the text. He lays down and uh, he lays low, excuse me, verse 11, he lays low for a few days, goes out at night with just a few in verse 12, not telling anyone what he knew God had prompted in his heart to do. So while we do not believe in extra revelation like the Bible, we do believe in the prompting and conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Lord had prompted Nehemiah in his heart. 
So get the picture. A handful of people go out inconspicuously at night. They survey the parts of the city where the wall is down. I mean, I'm not sure what all this looked like. I mean, was the Mission Impossible theme playing as they were getting around the city? Uh, I doubt it. Uh, were, they, were they, you know, in some close calls? Were they, I'm not sure what all happened that night, but I know one thing. They laid low, it was inconspicuous, and they didn't tell anybody what happened and no one noticed them. And verse 16 reveals the success of the mission because no one knew that ne what Nehemiah was up to that night and he didn't tell anyone and he was not seen by anyone. So the walls would, uh, there, by the way, the walls he's inspecting particularly were the ones that were obviously the most vulnerable, hence why they were destroyed and weakened. And so the walls served not only as a protection, but those walls also symbolized the boundaries of religious belief there in the community. In chapter 8, the boundaries were reinstated by the re reading of the Torah, which we'll come to later. So, beloved, if we're going to march forward, here's what we learn from this. If we're going to march forward as effective workmen in the ministry, we need to learn the path of carefulness as seen in the life of Nehemiah. There's wisdom we learn from observing Nehemiah's carefulness. Having begun months before with prayer, being guided by providence so far, yet even now, at the very first step he must take, a personal survey, a quiet private survey of the work, thorough personal acquaintance with the work himself, with the necessity of the cause, is what we see in Nehemiah. Are you following me? So, what do we learn from Nehemiah? He's seeking to do the Lord's work. He wants to be obviously a spiritual protector and provider and promote spiritual good for the life of Israel. We learn from him a, a number of things. Let me ask you something. Do you survey your home and its spiritual needs? And after that, do, do you look at the church? And when you're done surveying that, do you look at your own community and neighborhood? Have you been praying over these things and inquiring of the Lord, asking the Spirit of God to prompt you, to lead you, to control you and be ready wherever that place would be? You know, throughout the whole book of Nehemiah, you are struck with the singleness of the man, the strength of his individuality. He's quite prepared. If no one else will rise up to serve, he will serve by himself. And yet at the same time, he never refuses help. The Lord continues to provide for him. In verse 12, like Nehemiah, we should pray for God's prompting and help in all of our labors and thank him for his good hand, his kind hand upon us to give us success and give him glory for the good ideas that he places in our minds to reach people with the gospel, to help our brothers and sisters know the Lord more meaningfully, to guide our families into more faithfulness. We must learn, like Nehemiah, the art of waiting Charles Spurgeon was so helpful in this section. He, Nehemiah prayed about Jerusalem. He didn't cease to hope. And then he came to the, uh, to the wasted city. He didn't rush the work at once, as our impulses are often suggested. You know, maybe we would have come in more boldly, uh, been more loud, stirred up the community, got more attention, turned on the social, whatever it means. But Nehemiah said, I need to assess this situation. I need to pray. I need to be careful about this. And then I'll move. Spurgeon said here that Nehemiah knew that raw haste was half-sister to delay. Raw haste is the half-sister of more delay. He was there three whole days in which nothing was attempted. 
didn't seize a trowel in his hand and haste at once to start working on the wall, letting the other people come and join him if they pleased. But he rode alone all around the walls to inspect the damage, estimate the cost, and sacrifice and toil to repair it. Spurgeon said, we must be eager to labor, but we must also learn to wait. I don't know why Mr. Spurgeon has to go there. I don't like waiting, but he's right. God's servants will find their master does not always give them instant and immediate success, but he's often pleased to glorify himself by testing their faith. Maybe you're, maybe you're in that today. Maybe you're in a waiting period. And you need to hear that God has never lost control. And he is testing your, your faith. Compelling you to seek him more in prayer. To open your ears to truths you, you've been pushing away. That actually have been, would be good counsel for you to advise. But you've been pushing away. That the Lord's using this trial particularly to get those antennas back up. And receive the signal from his word. To hear the message plainly. Beloved, don't we need to see that we are always in hostile territory in this world and that we need to give ourselves to wisdom, to patience, and to prayer? I mean, are we going to be better disciples in our homes by being minimally involved in our churches? Are we going to miss good opportunities to share the gospel and show the love of Jesus by neglecting his word, neglecting prayer, and neglecting church fellowship? Aren't we going to miss good opportunities? Don't you know how we are prone to get beat down and discouraged? We should pray for grace, for the grace to be a person of faithfulness, and that God would raise up more Nehemiahs in the life of the church. The world rejects the supremacy of God. Be resolved to walk wisely in obedience to the Lord. Number three. Number three. Remember how provisional God is. Remember how provisional God is. Verse 17 and 20 through 20. Don't answer. I want you to think in your head, who is the most encouraging person you know? In my life, it's both my wife and, and several friends, by God's grace. And these people, just like you, in the text that he's addressing in verses 17 through 20, need encouragement in the Lord, not in their feelings but in the truth about God. They need encouragement in the Lord. The feelings will come. The truth needs to come first. So after surveying what was completed, you can see in the text, he gave an honest assessment. You can feel the heart of Nehemiah as he gives the assessment, right? I tried to slow down and read it carefully to you. Can you imagine when they saw Nehemiah, the newly appointed governor of Jerusalem, taking the time to address the situation that already was like a wash of encouragement over them? That's why one of the most important ministries you have in this church is seeing and being seen. So someone can actually see you and talk to you and you can see them and talk to them. See that discouraged mother. See that discouraged husband. See that discouraged young person and care for them and say, I've seen what's going on. How can I help you? How can I encourage you in the Lord today? Nehemiah just, 
He sees it all and he tells them. Wow, he saw that? I wonder if there were any tears there that day. Discouraged people need that call to awaken to God's glory, though. That's what Nehemiah gets at. When you get beaten down by this world and your sinful and your and your own sinful impulse, sometimes we think, "Oh, it's just the world's mind." We, we believe sometimes what the world believes that the, our problems are always outside of us. It's always something else and somebody else's problem. The Bible says first and foremost, there are problems out there, yes, but the very first thing we need to deal with is the, our own hearts. We need to deal with our own walk before God Almighty. We need to deal with our own sin. When you get beaten down, though, and discouraged by the world and your own patterns, because we all disappoint ourselves, don't we? How many, how, don't raise your hand, but how many of you know what I'm talking about? You had those serious regrets from the past, right? When you get beaten down by the world, the circumstances around you, your own failings where you have not even lived up to your own preaching that you've put on others, you can stop seeing what's happening in your life and just fall in on yourself. You ever been there? I've never been there, Pastor Garrett. Never had that, never had that problem. <laughs> Lion. We've all been there. We've all had self-pity. And if someone is dealing with many issues, you can see that they begin to let themselves go. And, and look here, they let the city go. They probably let their houses go. It's not looking good. It's like one of those reality shows where someone has to go into the home and help the person, like your place is falling apart. Why are you hanging on to these things from the 80s, you know? What's this, what's this bad food that you refuse to throw out even though it spoiled two years ago, you know? They need someone to call them, help them. They're dealing with issues. They, they let themselves go, and they need someone to call them not to themselves, but to God. Zeal for the Lord. He calls them those able Jewish people, to action in the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. You see the trouble we are in, he says. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned. Come, let us rebuild Jerusalem's wall, so that we will no longer be a disgrace. Verse 18, I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. Praise the Lord. He was to face many problems and much opposition, but his sense of divine direction gave him confidence. Friends, when we have God's word to march forward in obedience, we can walk in great confidence, beloved. I don't know what God wants me to do. Are you kidding me? He's called you to live a holy and sanctified life. First, to trust in Christ and follow him. And, 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 and second, to live a sanctified life, to walk in the fellowship of the saints, to share the gospel, to adorn the gospel with your lives. It's not, it's not some vague thing. It's really plain. He was humbly aware that it was God who had entrusted this project to him, who would give him the wisdom by which it would be accomplished, and his mission was to restore Jerusalem to an environment pleasing to God, where the people are walking in obedience. The people here need to hear something like this. Hey, <clears throat> this is not right. Let's go serve the Lord. His hand has always been on us. Let me tell you how. Don't you need that Christian friend in your life? Nehemiah's declarations express conviction, so they brought conviction. Jerusalem rallied to, um, 
resist invasion, clearing off the rubble, uh, and, uh, and, and getting to work. This is what's going to happen. But never, let me remind you that discouragement is one of Satan's strongest weapons. Discouragement is one of Satan's strongest weapons. Because from that discouragement will come all kinds of other problems. You'll begin to give in to, I don't know, let's just pick them out. Envy, lust, bitterness, malice, rage. The list could go on and on. A discouraged Christian is not a, a small thing, church. We should take it seriously. There's been times I've, I've gone to the church on Sunday night and said, hey, I, I need some volunteers to make a phone call, to reach out, to make a visit. That's me saying there's real discouragement happening there, and Satan is working to really hurt this person. We need to be the church and go care for them. By the grace of God and the strength of God, the work can go on. Nehemiah, like Moses, like Paul, like Jesus, showed himself to be a man here. A man rooted in the, in the word of God. My prayer is that God would fill our churches with men like this. If we get men like this, watch how it will impact the women of the church. Men passionate about God's glory? Come on. So men in this church, are you men of conviction and men who have their hope in the Lord? Could you offer words of encouragement like Nehemiah when the time is right? Or men, does your wife have to throw you 10,000 hints to get you to think about spiritual things? Ladies, are you an encourager of your husband in this? Or are you a Job's wife who needs to repent? Boys in the room, our world fears strong men of character in the Lord. They know you will stand against false teaching, injustice, and abuse. They know you will call out nonsense if you stand for the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So may God put it into your hearts, boys in this room. To know the Lord deeply and to care about what he cares about. If you won't help on that, I'd love to help you. And young ladies in the room, we'd love to help you here as well. See women submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Passionate about the truth. J.I. Packer said it well. It's those who know their God who are able to keep their head in panicky conditions and they can do this because of what's in their heart, end quote. The good Dr. Patrick dropped the mic on that one. He just walked out of the room. This is not just intellectual orthodoxy, but you can see in Nehemiah a tireless, all-absorbing passion for the closeness to God himself. Only this explains the sense of God's power that radiates in these kinds of people's lives. The, the steadying shrewdness of things they say. Their gift of imparting new hope to those who've lost hope. Don't you want to be this kind of Christian? People in the church who have stopped desiring growth in the word and knowledge of the, of the Lord God are concerning as it pertains to their salvation. I meet a lot of people who tell me I'm a Christian 
but they'll say, they'll say things like, I just don't really read the Bible. I know I should. I, just, nah. I really need a 10-minute sermon, you know? I, I'm not joking. I've encountered that even this last week. Have you considered reading up on this to get better as a Christian in this particular way? Nah, that's just, that's not what I'm going to do. That concerns me. Whether Nehemiah fed his soul on David's psalms is more than we know. He, he might have done so. But certainly David is most vivid in voicing the thoughts, the thoughts of the heart that's rooted in God. And that must have constituted his inner profile. And David uh, seems to have the last word in this chapter on God's servants keep going and how it impacted the people here. But the God of Nehemiah, if you look at the text, is the transcendent creator. The God of heaven, the text says. You see that? Self-sustaining, self-energizing, and eternal. From everlasting to everlasting. He is the Lord of history. The God of judgment and of mercy. A forgiving, gracious, and compassionate God. Slow to anger and abounding in love. God was to Nehemiah the most awe-inspiring most permanent, most pervasive, most intimate, most humbling, exalting, and commanding of all realities. Amen. Don't you need that to wash over your soul? I serve not some idol, not the spirit of this age, but the God of the heavens. I don't wake up for anything else. I wake up for him. And God, if you don't go with me today, let's just end it. Why keep going if you don't go with us? You ever feel that in your heart? God, we need you. Who else will we turn to? The God of the heavens. The basis on which great missionaries of the past is the same as Nehemiah who attempted great things for God and expected great things from God. He had grasped the greatness of God himself and hence we see that glorious answer. That glorious response. Look at verse 20 again. And we can say this in truth to the forces of darkness. As those who hold to the gospel. The God of the heavens is the one who grant us success. We his servants will start building. You have no right, no share, no right or historic claim here in Jerusalem. Friends, we have been given a commission. Jesus told us he will be with us to the end of the age. God is building his holy people, his holy city, his holy nation in Christ Jesus. We don't need to shrink back with the gospel. We need to be more bold with the gospel. We need to be more thrilled about sharing the love of Christ with this world. As we know the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We serve the God of the heavens. I don't serve the current administration. I don't serve, you know, fundamentally the town of La Plata or my earthly family. I serve the God of the heavens. We are to represent him, go forward with him. And we know that he is provisional. He has given us his son. 
and he has left us his spirit. Well, let me conclude. What do you think is the wisest way to live? To live accommodating to the pagan culture and experience the temporary peace of their hateful approvals or live for King Jesus? Experience temporary sorrows, but know the peace of God forevermore in unending joy in Christ Jesus. Two ways to live again. Let's pray. Lord, your word says to us, these things were written down for us as an example. As those, Lord, who have been um, shown, Lord, your purposes written down in Christ Jesus. And our hearts are helped. We're so helped to hear Nehemiah's spoken word recorded here. The God of the heaven is the one who will grant us success. Lord, we know that's true. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Help us to focus on that more and get our eyes off of ourselves. Lord, cause us to love our enemies, to speak the truth in love, and to be salt and light in this world. We need your grace. We won't march forward in, 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 in this battle without your, your help and your equipping, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.